Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Governor Kemp begins to lay out his legislative priorities. Democrats applaud his bipartisan spirit, but make it clear they'll push hard for expansion of Medicaid. And the government shutdown is starting to sting here in Georgia. This is Political Rewind. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So very glad to have you with us today. Let's get right to the panel so we can start talking about the stories in the news. Uh, the AJC's lead political writer, Jim Galloway, my partner on Mondays and Fridays, is here. You read Jim in the Wednesday and Sunday editions of the newspaper, and you continue to oversee the political blog, which the is in, now insider. called, the, it's, it's still, still the insider. It's still the insider, and it's, and it's at AJC.com. At AJC.com. Welcome, Jim. Thank Glad you. Glad to have you here. Uh, Republican uh, uh, writer, strategist, thinker, Jackie Gingrich-Cushman is here with us uh, today. Jackie, we're glad to uh, have you join us. Um, I mentioned that people, I've mentioned before when you've mm -hmm. been here, people can read your columns at Town Hall. Correct, yes. Or they can just go to JackieCushman.com and not only find your columns, but the books that you've written? Absolutely. I've written two books. I have a third coming out this year. You do? I do. Um, do you want to give us a so, little? No? I, I can. It's, right. it's going to be called Ranting and Raving, The Dangers of Political Polarization. Okay. <laughs> so, I think it's a timely topic. We'll see. All right. I could make an ironic comment, but I won't. <laughs> You'll save that for later. <laughs> well, save it for later. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson, former Hello. mayor of Columbus, newly in retirement from that role in yeah. public life. You're now uh, back working in the law. Right. A partner at Halbooth Smith. Thanks for being yes, here. We, thank we you. We're very glad to have you with us. And across from you, Cesar Mitchell, former president of the Atlanta City Council, former candidate for mayor of the city of Atlanta. Thanks for being here today to you too, Cesar. It's great to be back. Well, we got a great first story to talk about, thanks to Jim Galloway and his colleagues over at the AJC. You just released a new, at least the first part of a new poll. We'll see the rest of it tomorrow. Right. On, uh, or, or on Saturday. Um, you can tell us, though, a little bit about the uh, approval, disapproval, the favorable, unfavorables that you got. But before we get to that, this was commissioned by the AJC uh, for the, the University of Georgia right. did this poll for you. Right. How many do we know at the sample size? 800, something 800, like that? 800, a margin of error, 3.7%. Okay. Uh, and most importantly, it was not of likely voters, it was of registered voters. Tell us, make sure our listeners, our viewers know, why is that important? Uh, this, is, this is important because in, in November and you're screening for likely voters, you're trying to find out who is actually going mm -hmm. to go to the polls. Right. Uh, that getting to the polls is not so much important in January of 2019. So what you're, well, we'll, we'll unveil some legislative questions because that's really what this poll is all about, trying to find what the public's attitude is toward uh, some of the hot issues in the legislature. But in doing so, you have to ask about about uh, your your approval ratings for, for, for governor. Uh, uh, we did the same thing for, for David Perdue, who's up in 2020. Uh, and uh, and of course the exiting Nathan Deal. 
And we're going to talk about all that. In fact, let's get to the first numbers uh, that we're going to look at, and then I'll bring you all in. You tell me what you think of all this. So, as Jim said, uh, one of the things that the poll asks is, how do you rate uh, Governor Brian Kemp, favorably or unfavorably? It's interesting that 37 percent find his approval. They say he's favorable. They see him favorably. 47 percent have him unfavorable. And among men and women, it's, you know, kind of a push. 44 percent men approve, 40 percent women. All right. That said, what is that uh, tell us, Cesar Mitchell? Well, I think, first of all, it just reminds us that the election was just two months ago. Uh, and I think uh, the election brought up a number of issues and there was a lot of polarization. Uh, I think the other thing that it, it really touches on is the distinction between likely voters and registered voters. Uh, likely voters came to the polls and voted for Brian Kemp uh, in greater numbers than they did for Stacey Abrams. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, if, if I were going to make some declaratory statement here, I would say shame on registered voters for not being more involved mm. uh, because, again, I think the poll reflects where people are on issues. A few interesting things. One, buyer's remorse, obviously. Uh, that's a very low number for a brand new governor or brand new anything, really. I usually get some bounce of just optimism that it's going to turn out all right. So that's unfortunate uh, for the Kemp camp. Uh, it also, I think, proves Stacey Abrams' thesis uh, that um, if everybody had turned out to vote as she had hoped, uh, she would be the governor, mm -hmm. right? And it proves what a lot of Democrats have been saying for a long time, and that is that Georgia is a blue state. The Democrats just don't vote. Jackie, you're outnumbered today. Got two Democrats, one Republican. And before people start commenting, there are any number of shows where we've had two Republicans, yes. one Democrat. I think you've been probably that. a part of them. Yes. But anyhow, I, give us not, your not perspective. Not my recent recollection, but uh, I, I should like that this is a number I kind of like, so I'm kind of happy with this. Um, so I think it says a couple of things. I didn't look at all the cross tabs. I didn't have a chance. Um, I don't think there is any cross, Jim, let us know, between um, where they voted, where people voted, and who they like. I don't think we right. have that yeah. level of detail. So we don't really know. In the buyers reports that speculation. We don't really know. Um, a couple of things I think the, the, the coverage of Kemp has been so incredibly negative during ending of the end of the campaign through the through kind of how it played out, how Stacey Abrams, you know, didn't ever actually concede. I think the, the coverage has been very negative. Stacey Abrams did not really, uh, she wasn't very gracious um, in terms of the end of the campaign. That's clearly a reflection. My guess is I haven't looked at the time frame, but if you looked at people who listened to his speech, his inaugural speech, which I thought was very good, we can talk about it later. If you had actually asked people after they watched that, what do you think of him? Mm -hmm. My guess is that would change based on the numbers that we have in front of us today. And third, I think while it's helpful to know approve or disapprove, I think when people in the end vote for somebody, they don't just look at personality and whether they approve of that person, but do they carry on the policies that they oh, want yeah. to have? So I think I think this is a it's a much more complex kind of discussion than do we approve, disapprove? And, more, and the most important thing is he is governor. And what we would hope to see if he actually goes forward and does a good job like Nathan Deal did, then those numbers will trend mm -hmm. up across the course I, of his term. Jim, let me throw this out, out to you. Well, go ahead. You make your comment. Then I want to uh, well, ask okay. you an uh, observation. Uh, okay. one, one thing I, I will agree with Caesar. This is this this shows that that Brian Kemp is suffering from a very, very big hangover. Uh, from November 6th mm -hmm. and and the concentrated campaigning he did in South Georgia we, we did it we, we your numbers uh, your chart didn't show it but we did a, we did a regional br breakdown of his approval uh, un, uh, un, 
faves, unfaves on this. And in Metro Atlanta, he's down to 20%. Yeah. And that's uh, in, in South Georgia, he's up 56. Okay, well, that, in fact, leads me to the question I wanted to ask you. Jackie says that some of this has to do with the, uh, the tremendous amount of negative press she says that he got. And there is no question that when it came to stories about voter suppression, allegations of voter suppression, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of negative press. Uh, certainly the national media really went after him. But, okay, so put that, yes, say that's true. But here's the other part of that. Brian Kemp ran to the right. It isn't as if he made a secret of it. He ran on some hot-button social issues uh, that are going to turn off a certain percentage of voters, and he ran a campaign based in rural Georgia. So, to some extent, don't the numbers reflect who Brian Kemp chose to be and where he chose to run during the campaign, now it's up to him to change the perception. Right, right. Um, there, there, there are two things. Number one, uh, one thing you do have to remember is that pretty much after that election, after the election, it, save for his, his, his tour, his uh, victory lap that he had last week, uh, Brian Kemp j uh, dropped out of sight. I mean, he had a government to put together, so he was not on the newspaper, in, in, in on the pages day after day after day, uh, uh, saying this or saying that. Okay, so so that's that's one reason I think those numbers are so low. The other factor is Donald Trump. I mean, we, we, we haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah, but, we're going to get to him but, in but, a minute. But 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 <laughs> Brian Kemp's numbers really track, and they mirror. Donald Trump's numbers in Georgia. All right. well, may I take just one little exception? He just has taken a victory tour. I mean, he was in Columbus. So uh, he has been around. Uh, I'm not sure of the dates, but that was, uh, that was earlier this week. Yeah, or about a week yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, maybe last week sometime. And uh, and so he has that. And as far as uh, that he's gotten a lot of bad press, well, I certainly think it was bad press. Of course, this is something he doubled down on, right? That this we all think it's voter suppression. Those of us, the Democrats, a lot of people nationally, a lot of people in the state of Georgia thought it was voter suppression, thought it was unfair and so forth. But he doubled down on the fact that that's what was needed for um, voter integrity, right? So I, I find it interesting that you're casting it as a negative um, press when it's something he was very proud of. He uh, kept and, the and, yeah, I, yeah. Well, you go ahead. And see uh, I think we're dealing with, again, I think an emerging phenomenon. Really, I think it's just something that's really become more pronounced in the age of President Trump. That is, people are making decisions based upon party versus issues in many cases. Uh, and I think that's what's where people are right now. Folks say, well, I, I don't like President Trump, but you know, I'm going to vote for him. If I had a dollar for every time someone told me that, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I'd be on a, a boat somewhere <laughs> having fun. And so I think people are voting now based upon just tribalism and party affiliation, and they're setting aside their issues related to the issues. Well, maybe, but this state is not. Uh, the numbers on Kemp's uh, favorable, unfavorable don't reflect what the voting population of Georgia is, do they? 37 percent favorable. He couldn't have won the race if that, if it was a, fl a reflection of tribalism. Well, I think, we got, I, think, I think we've also got, you know, there's a whole segment of our population, our, of our electorate that's kind of lost in the middle, quite frankly, mm -hmm. and, but and you're still looking for yeah. a place to go. And you, um, Bill, Bill, you also have to recognize that that job approval 
is 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 different from mm -hmm. will will you vote for me? And, that, yes. and, and because, that's, that's, yes, that's right. essentially because, what Jackie said. Exactly Jackie. because 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 in in uh, the polls the, the the last poll we did in October I believe. Uh, Kemp's uh, approval rating was mm. somewhat like 43 yeah. percent, but 48 percent said they would right. vote for him. Now, this was this is these numbers are in part the result of a, a very very bitter mm -hmm. Republican primary. Jackie, the, the interesting thing about this is, and you alluded to it by saying the inaugural speech, the state of the state, could start changing perceptions. His, his, he has his fate in his own hands. It'll be interesting to see. If they poll six months from now, how perceptions may have changed depending on how he chooses to govern. No, you're exactly right. I mean, if, if we all uh, can think back, you know, uh, to when Governor Deal took took over, it was again, it was a you know very divisive primary. Um, when he won, I think a lot of people were very concerned about what kind of governor he would be. He's turned out to be a very good governor. He's got great. Well, you'll get to the the, the the numbers later, but very good approval numbers. Um, and so that's my hope that, that that's where where Governor Kemp is going to head. Right? He's going he's going to look to work on issues that Georgians care about. Um, he did take a, a victory lap, but again, as Jim mentioned, it was outside of Metro Atlanta, so it certainly didn't bolster any of those, right, any of those numbers inside Atlanta, because he focused on where his votes came from in rural Georgia, and that makes a difference. So I think, I mean, I think it's a, it's a conglomeration of things, and Caesar's right. I mean, I think there's too much polarization, mm -hmm. and people can say, I don't like for somebody, but I voted for, for them anyway. But it's also a choice between two candidates, and Stacey Abrams is a very attractive candidate, but if you look at her issues, if you look at, I'm not sure if it's still up, but on her um, campaign website, she's very, she's very far left on her issues. And she talked about recently this week about she'd consider having non-citizens vote. So if you look at the actual candidates and their policies, I mean, it's, there's a huge gap that I think people in the middle went with the one they felt more comfortable with. Well, so we're beyond the election now. And so I think, candidly, if, if I'm Governor Kemp, I see these numbers and I'm having a party. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, because, I mean, it's kind of like Richard Pryor in the movie, Which Way Is Up? I mean, there's no place but up. And I think <laughs> I'm saying it gives them a lot of it gives them a lot of flexibility and a lot of leeway to for do you some for you you numbers. younger people out there we have to define Richard Pryor. Yeah, <laughs> right. Don't watch it unless you're at least over. But oh, just real quick. Yeah, real quick. But, Go ahead. But, but I don't know if you're going to talk about Stacey's numbers. Um, but she has a 52 percent approval rating. Yeah, we're going to talk about oh, her okay. a little bit All right. later. Well, I, I just if, wanted to say. Could we yeah. could we park that? Because sure. I want to talk about her about her a little later in the show. Let's look at the other. Uh, numbers as they relate to First David Purdue, which will, in fact, take us to Stacey Abrams and others later on. But look at David Perdue. He's, his numbers are uh, not bad compared to uh, 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 Brian Kemp. Yes, Jim? Right. No, no he's, he is, he's, uh, he's in, in decent shape. He's not in great shape. I'm sure his, his people would like to see him over 50 percent. 45 percent with registered voters is a, is a, is a, is a pretty solid number. And, 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 and remember, we're, we're in the very early stages of a 2020 campaign it's always important to see who he's running against. Well, of course, and we're going to talk about that later in the show. But, Jack, is it possible to put that screen up again of David Perdue's numbers? If we can, because what you'll see is, once again, Jackie, the gap between how men and women are viewing these Republican mm -hmm. office holders is relatively dramatic, which is something that Republicans have got to be a little concerned about. I, I, I would certainly hope so. I mean, and I know that uh, Senator Perdue is. I know he's concerned about that. 
Um, he's worked. He's. I think he works very hard. He's a very good senator. I do wonder, and Jimmy might might know how much his numbers are depressed a little because of the government shutdown. I mean, it's hard to have too much approval for someone that's in a job where currently it's not. You know, it's not working as a whole. Right. The the poll was taken <laughs> January 10th through yesterday. Okay. Right. So 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 the the, the shutdown is I'm sure is a is a, a big part of it. Right. And I would think if the government were up and operating, you know, correctly, and we can get into that later, the whole shutdown story, that that might help him a little bit. But he, you know, he works he works very hard. Um, I think he's done a great job reaching out to all different Georgians. Actually, was with him recently at a breakfast where he was introducing Dr. Thomas of Morehouse um, to community leaders to make sure that he had the connections that he needed. So he's doing a very good job for Georgia. But to your point, in the end, it becomes a choice about who the other candidate is. Is um, how it's interesting to hear Jackie say that he's said he's worked hard to reach out to all Georgians. He's been a pretty doctrinaire Republican up there. Now, that may not be a bad... I'm not suggesting what, it's term, a bad thing. You, you said what now? Mm -hmm. What kind of Republican? Doctrinaire. Oh. He's mm -hmm. been pretty Whatever much... That means. <laughs> Dogmatic. He's been, he's been a... He's, he's been a line. hardcore Trump Let me break Republican. It down. Let me break it down. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think, granted, the government shutdown is, is in full effect. I really do believe that when it's all said and done, he's got to decide if he's going to be ride or die with President Trump. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's how he's going to be judged, fairly or unfairly, mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the election. I think it's going to hurt him uh, that he is so closely associated with Trump and he is willing to back Trump on almost anything uh, that Trump says. I think that's probably Well, Teresa, well, he's die. already think, made the decision. Uh, that horse has left the barn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, ride or die, he, he's riding. But um, I would say this, 45% uh, is actually consistent. He's been at 45% uh, in at least three polls that I can think of going back um, to, uh, you know, early 18 that the AJC did and then uh, some of these horse race polls. So okay. 45 is pretty much where he is. The difference, the difference between David Perdue and Brian Kemp is Metro Atlanta. Mm -hmm. David Perdue has a 30% ap approval rating in Metro Atlanta, where Kemp had 10, 20%. Right. Interesting. All right. Now the big one. Uh, and by that, I mean the president of the United States. Here's what the AJC UGA poll shows us about favorability, unfavorability for the president. Jim, you said it earlier. President Trump's favorable is exactly the same number as Brian Kemp's favorable, 37%. His unfavorable, 56%. And again, huge gap between men and women. So you said, when we talked about this poll this morning, you made sure I got the note from you that said, it's amazing how these numbers all track back to President Trump. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, uh, and, and, Trump is down from no, uh, from our last poll in October. I mean, he was he was in mid 40s at that point. Uh, I, 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 to Jackie's point, I think this this mm -hmm. shutdown is really having an effect on the Republican Party in Georgia. Yeah, but to mm -hmm. Jackie and Caesar's point about ride or die and time to change for Kemp, um, he does have time to change. Kemp does. Uh, it's a warning sign. There's no doubt, but he has time to make a new legacy, right. cut his own path. Purdue's been at this for five years or so. Yeah. So that that's the difference, and in, in, in it's interesting mm -hmm. that it is at 45. How disturbing. Look, we we know that in the crosstabs, mm -hmm. Republican. Republicans, Trump continues to have tremendous support here in Georgia, as he does uh, from the Republicans across the country. But, but those numbers, are, it strikes me that those numbers, which could change very quickly mm -hmm. once the shutdown ends, we'll see, 
Uh, they suggest that Georgia really is going to be in play in the 2020 presidential race. Well, I mean, I like to say, first of all, I like to see Georgia, um, at least both sides, uh, look at Georgia as in play because for, for, for several cycles, Georgia has been a donor state in terms of money for Republicans, and then the candidates don't really come here. So quite frankly, the fact that we're now thinking of Georgia as you know, in play means the candidates actually come here and spend some time and focus, which is good for Georgia, quite frankly. So that's all good. Um, regarding Trump and the shutdown, um, and I don't know if we're going to, are we going to talk about the shutdown Yes, we itself? will. Okay, well, I don't want to get into the, I, uh, my, I keep my, parking my things. Sorry, I I'm, feel like I've got wanna, sticky wanna, notes. I know, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll park <laughs> that fine. one. But, um, but no, you're right. I mean, it's, it's very hard to have good <laughs> approval you know, um, numbers when you're in the middle of a government shut down. Yep. Um, I mean, Trump has a lot of a lot of issues. His main problem is that he has a problem communicating in a way in which that is not offensive to a lot of people. Um, and he can decide whether he can he, that he's fine with that and he can look at the results he's going to deliver, which I think, quite frankly, if you pulled apart his personality and the results, he's created a lot of good results that many Republicans would agree with versus the personality that he that he has, his persona that you especially see on TV. Um, he's decided that he's fine with that persona because it gives him the coverage he wants. That's his decision. He's the president. He gets to make that decision. But we'll see if any of that changes going forward. Caesar, is it going to put Georgia in play? Georgia's going to be in mm -hmm. play. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you made a really good point. I think from, from the Democratic side, we've been a donor state as well, so to speak. And I mm -hmm. think now you're going to see candidates really come here. You're starting to see that uh, more and more. And so I think Georgia's going to be in play. Uh, in a major way, there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm around this election. So we're going to take a break in a minute, but uh, I'll ask a question that will lead into what we're going to talk about in the next segment, which is how did uh, uh, Governor Kemp deal, handle his state of the state address yesterday? What did we hear? What did we not hear? How did the Democrats respond? But going into the break and leading to that conversation, Teresa, mm -hmm. Brian Kemp, in both his inaugural speech and his state of the state speech, mentioned Donald Trump once. He didn't do it in the inaugural speech. He didn't say he thanked a lot of people who helped him get where he is. Didn't thank Donald Trump in that inaugural speech. And the only reference he made in the state of the state speech was in a group of people who he thanked, including the vice president and others for helping with the hurricane damage in South Georgia. Right. And some of the victims of Hurricane Michael would take exception as to whether or not they're actually helping Right, right now right. with the shutdown, right. obviously. But no, yeah. he's, you know, steer, steering clear he's for steered, the time being. Yeah. <laughs> so much of what was in his speech, his inaugural speech on Monday and the way he handled his Thursday speech is explained by this poll. Mm -hmm. All right, with all that in mind, let's take our first break of the show and uh, come back and we'll talk a little bit about how Brian Kemp handled his first week as governor of Georgia. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And thanks. As the Republican nominee for president, Donald Trump made a bold claim about a broken system of government in Washington. I alone can fix it. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Two years into his presidency, we assess that claim in the midst of a government shutdown. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's four till seven this afternoon on GPB and gpbnews.org.
Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're glad to have you all here today. Uh, Jim, before we go into the uh, Kemp speech, let's just show one more piece of data from your poll. It's the outgoing governor. Here's how people told UGA they felt about, they feel about Nathan Deal as he leaves office. 57% view him favorably across party lines, 20, only 26% unfavorably. To some extent, that's the standard that Brian Kemp has to live up to. And, and, and it may be unreachable because the state is changing so much. 57% is, uh, I, if, I, if I'm, my memory serves, is precisely what he won uh, four, year, or four years and change ago in his, in his reelect. Uh, yeah. and, and that was, at that time, that was the standard Republican margin, which has now uh, toppled very, very close to 50%. And, Jackie, you pointed it out yourself. He started out with a very conservative agenda. Brian Robinson, who was his right. communications mm -hmm. director, his first term was on the show the other day. And, and we talked about the fact one of the first big initiatives that Nathan Deal took on was what people thought very punitive legislation targeting undocumented residents of the state of Georgia. That put him at odds with a lot of uh, uh, the, f the more liberal-minded folks in the state, and yet he recovered beautifully. Well, he, he did it, and he did it, I think, in a very thoughtful way. And to your point, Jim, we'll have to wait and see if Governor Kemp does the same thing. But um, but Governor Deal really kind of, he kind of stepped back. He looked at the big picture. He really focused on some really big problems. He looked at, at um, criminal justice reform, mm -hmm. put together a commission, let them sort it out for a while, didn't jump to any conclusions, and then followed through and really delivered some real results for all Georgians of both parties that they can agree upon. Same thing for early education. He's really focused hard on early education. As you know, Sandra was a teacher, so he's really focused on that. And that's kind of bipartisan issue that many, many Georgians care about. So I think in the, in what he did was really he pulled back, looked at what Georgia needs, put together a team that would spend some time looking at it because you have the time, and then very deliberately rolled out things that, that made life better for Georgia. All right, so that said, Jim Galloway, what do we say about the state of the state speech that Brian Kemp gave yesterday? Uh, I will use his own metaphor. I think it was a lot of concrete and two by four. <laughs> uh, it was it was it was basic and structural. Uh, there was there wasn't. Uh, it was I think it was only four pages long. Uh, it was by, twenty five by, minutes. Twenty five minutes, yeah. which is which was by, by 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 conventional standards pretty pretty short. Yep. It was uh, yep. it was just a few uh, lines of budget spending. Uh, uh, some reassurances that I, I want to keep the state's o the state open and enthusiastic about uh, business. Uh, a nice reference to Georgia as, uh, to 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 uh, uh, his intention to keep Georgia uh, the state the Hollywood uh, of of the South. Uh, but it was it was it was spare. It was spare. Yes, I, spare is a great word. Um, if it was 25 minutes, he was reading slow. Um, and, <laughs> there was uh, some applause. Yes, yeah. oh, I'm sure so. Yes, and and um, and his inaugural speech was was equally as as spare. Yeah, that was like and, nine minutes. Yes, long. it was it was uh, really no vision casting and so forth. But to go back to Nathan Deal and make the comparison with Brian Kemp in the state of the state. Um, you know, Nathan Deal, I'd like to remind everybody, was a Democrat uh, for a very long period of time. And so I think he had sensibilities and were he was used to working with people on various issues. He knew what was important to the other side of the aisle. And I think you saw that. As I heap praise on Nathan Deal, let me make it very clear, because I do hear people uh, mention to me after I leave the show, I was very disappointed in his attempted Muslim ban stopped by Sam Olins. Uh, obviously, the ca gun carry everywhere was hugely irresponsible. Um, and then, of course, not expanding Medicare. All that being said, Medicaid, I should say, 
All that being said, he, he did understand um, the bigger picture All right. and, uh, and criminal justice reform and so forth. You don't get that feeling yet of Kemp. I mean, this is a this is an unread book at this point, but you don't get the feeling yet there's this this cast of a vision. And you do have to remember yeah. that Brian Kemp is the first Republican governor mm -hmm. of Georgia who was always <laughs> always a Republican a during the dogmatic point. or doctrinaire years. And he's and, and, he, and he hasn't he hasn't ever had to 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 deal with the other side all to right. reach out to the all other right. side. So all that said, he gave a speech, both the inaugural and his speech yesterday. Uh, and the proof is in the details. The devil is in the details, Caesar and Jackie. But he avoided all the hot button issues that he had promoted during the campaign. That's not really surprising. I mean, those are things that you want to bring up as the session continues, if you bring them up at all. And his rhetoric, at least, was one in which he talked about reaching out to the other side. All of that's rhetoric. We'll watch the session unfold. but. I don't think you can, can you criticize him for uh, not being, uh, somehow giving more details, not laying out more of his agenda? We're going to talk about some of what he did lay out. He, he started in the right, with the right tone at least, didn't he? I think, uh, I think what will end up being perhaps a strength of his is his tone. Uh, he doesn't speak uh, in, in, in I would, what I call boisterous tone, boisterous <laughs> language, you know, bullying kind of Just language. in his commercial. You know, well, yes, well, that's that's campaigning, now yeah, right. governing. And so I think that's going to serve him well. And I think, uh, I thought it was smart not to have uh, a speech that was an hour long. 13 words would have mm -hmm. been fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I think it's going to all boil down to what he does. And I think he realizes that. And I think that goes part and parcel with his personality. Jackie? Oh, I agree. And I think he, he did mention he wanted to build, build upon Governor Deal, which, you know, is smart. He's not going to go backwards in any of those areas. He did um, simply mention uh, teachers. I can't remember in which, which speech, teachers and teachers raises. Yesterday, yeah. Or Thursday. And that's very important, I think. To, um, to, it should be important to everyone in, in Georgia. So I thought that was very important. And I, and I think he is. He's trying to get his feet under him. Uh, Jim, I thought you wrote a very good piece this week about let's wait and see what actually happens. You know, it's the beginning words, but until you actually have things that occur, you don't really know what's happening. And I think that's kind of where we are. Yeah. Every leader has their skill set, right? And Ed Lindsay said either yesterday or the day before on your show that they were going to let the controversial issues be brought up by the legislature, right. which I think is very wise when you look at the skill set of this particular governor, because oratory, agility, you know, that's something Nathan Deal really had. And, and I don't know yet, maybe he'll develop it, but that's not in his, his wheelhouse. Maybe it is being more friendly, the softer tone, whatever. Mm -hmm. But they're going to have to find how this governor works with these issues. And maybe it is to let the more controversial things be in the legislature. Yeah, I, I think, you'd, you, you'd, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, I think you'd have to go back to Joe Frank Harris to find a governor who's, who, who, who wasn't a rhetorician. Thank you very much. And Joe Frank ended up doing very well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's drill down. Let's look at uh, some of what and listen to some of what he had to say. Not surprisingly for a man who uh, outperformed Donald Trump in much of rural Georgia, he devoted a good bit of his speech to talking about how he intended to work to lift up uh, the rural parts of the state. Uh, here he is talking about rural development. With your help, we will continue to build. With places like Atlanta, Augusta, 
Savannah, and Columbus continuing to grow and thrive. It still feels like the Great Recession in parts of rural Georgia. Businesses are closing. Opportunities are drying up. People are losing faith. But as governor, I will work to ensure that someone's potential is not determined by their zip code or their county. So, Teresa, mm -hmm. it strikes me that, of course, and, and in a second we're going to hear him talk about rural health care, it strikes me that this is a le the legislature for a couple sessions now right. has talked extensively about how they're going to lift up the economy of rural Georgia. Kemp makes it a centerpiece of his campaign. But this is a very heavy lift. Yes. How do, you know, it'll be interesting to see the, the legislation. We already know a little of it. But turning around some of the areas of South Georgia that you're closer to yeah. down there in Columbus than we are, that's going to be a hard, hard challenge for him to meet. Right. I would suggest this as people begin to try and tackle this issue anew uh, with the new leadership we have, is that we always are looking at the um, foundation for prosperity of being physical infrastructure, roads, broadband, so forth. It's really financial infrastructure is what we have to think about in these rural parts of Georgia. That's why health care is so critically important. Uh, that's why uh, a living wage is so critically important. Um, somehow we need to move that out of the charitable realm in our mind, uh, the moralistic imperative realm of our mind, and understand that those things are economic necessities. And if you're going to have prosperity in rural parts of Georgia, Quitman County, Randolph County, Stewart County, some of these places that have really been struggling since the recession, particularly depopulation's an issue. Just building a road and just putting in broadband, while that is helpful, is not going to solve the other problem. All right, that said, and I want to play one more soundbite and then get everybody mm -hmm. else in this conversation. Uh, uh, Jackie talked about, I'm sorry, uh, Teresa talked about <laughs> rural health care. Uh, so did uh, Brian Kemp in his speech yesterday. I have included $1 million in the Department of Community Health's budget to to craft state flexibility options for Georgia's Medicaid program. We will ex <laughs> We will expand access without expanding a broken system that fails to deliver for patients. We will drive competition and improve quality while encouraging innovation. I will work with the legislature to grow the rural hospital tax credit, tackle the doctor shortage, and build a healthier Georgia. So it sounds great, Jackie, but uh, Democrats, as we'll hear in a minute, are going to take issue because looking at waivers to try to expand health services in rural Georgia isn't the same as expanding Medicaid to give coverage to people in rural Georgia. No, no there are two different things. And as he uh, mentioned when he t discussed it, first of all, I think it's very important that we have a governor who not only is, is from outside Atlanta, where we have a lot of medical facilities and a lot of options, um, he's from the, the rural area, but he also, he obviously really understands it's a real issue. So that, I gotta say, you know, at least we're talking about it as, as a real issue. That's, that's a good step forward. Secondarily, he talks about how do we do a waiver system or Im improve a, the number of doctors or access, whatever, without expanding a, a broken system. So the discussion really is, we know we need to have a solution. The question is, can we, 
get rid of all of our talking points about and figure out how to actually make that solution work in Georgia. And so it'll be interesting to see if, if he can actually navigate that because it's a very much of a hot button issue and to see if he can actually get down that path in a real way. Caesar, the Democrats had Harold Jones respond uh, to the uh, uh, Kemp message. Let's listen to what he had to say about Medicaid. We cannot be content to be number one for business while we are ranked 46 for healthcare. Our healthcare challenge is a rural problem, an urban problem, and suburban problem. It affects every Georgian in every corner of this state. Many of our citizens do not have health insurance, and tonight, far too many of our neighbors, friends, and family members will struggle to choose between an emergency room bill or their light bill. Medicaid expansion is the only answer that will provide the state a nine-to-one return on its financial investment. Medicaid expansion is the answer for families who are struggling with whether to pay their light bill or their doctor bill. Medicaid expansion is the answer for our hospitals. It allows them to keep their cost in line, their patients secure, and their workers employed. Medicaid expansion, Democrats are going to push for it hard. I, I think it's going to end up being one of those, I mean, it's going to be an issue. I mean, interestingly enough, even though, you know, seeking Medicaid waivers is about bringing still more health care dollars into the state, which I think is a good thing, and it's good to see mm -hmm. uh, that Governor Kemp is willing to go in that direction. But I think Medicaid expansion is an issue that is very serious for Democrats, and it's going to be an issue that really gets pushed. Because when you get out into the rural areas, let's, let's set aside the, the urban areas, in the rural area, the, I mean, people, as we discussed before on this show, are literally going uh, and getting their health care in trailers, mm -hmm. uh, at best. Yeah. Uh, Caesar, one one of the more interesting things I've noticed. I mean, I I truly think you're right, and I think I think Republican attitude is changing. Yeah. Do you know Do you know what word has just disappeared? I'd say in the last three months in Georgia, you didn't never hear it anymore. You never hear the word Obamacare mm. anymore. <laughs> right, right. And that that tells me that tells me that that Republicans are are getting ready to do something. We don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but they're the, but but they're going where they refused to go. Yeah, but, years but, and years ago. But Teresa, we we just had uh, the speaker on not long ago, about a week ago actually, and uh, he said I, he has no appetite for expanding Medicaid because he, he thinks eventually the cost will shift to the state. Uh, Kemp throughout the campaign said he didn't want to expand Medicaid, so. Where does that leave this whole debate? Well, you know, they've been, uh, just because they thought it was eventually going to shift to the state, they've been giving up $3 billion a year for all of these years, and that's really unconscionable when you look at the hundreds of thousands of Georgians that could have been covered. I would say this to my Republican friends. Uh, their mantra that government has no role, right? That, that we got to let the free market do everything. Um, this is a quintessential place for government to have a role, to create that framework in which then the free market can actually come in and there is nothing not a not an 1115 waiver uh, not philanthropy through tax credits nothing uh, of these patchwork proposed solutions that takes the place of the broad effect of Medicaid expansion and they need to go ahead and accept that and if they want to do an 1115 waiver fine do it for uh, vision and do it for dental and do it for uh, transportation enhancement um, all sorts of things that you have to have related to health care but nothing is going to get you the impact that a Medicaid expansion would. Jackie, 
is the notion of Medicaid expansion, Jim says the dialogue might be changing. Is the fear of Medicaid expansion more about just the concept and how it might offend the Republican base? Or do you think it's based on real fiscal concerns? I love the way you framed that. That was great. Um, I, no, <laughs> Thank I you. I, I don't, that was really good. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, we're worried that we might hurt. I mean, the, the, the concern is real. I mean, because there is the, I mean, we love the idea of taking money from the federal government and using it, but then, you know, it, we, at some point we had to figure out wh what state actually has to pay for it, what's the long-term vision, how does it all work, and quite frankly, while, while I don't agree that, that, our, that the Republicans have been said, you know, good luck and well, no government intervention at all, no government activity, that's not true, what we, what we are hesitant to do is have a primarily government-controlled health care system because look at, look at the VA system. I mean, it's, it, is a, it is a mess. Um, and so if you look at lots of different things the government tries to do nationally in a very big way without any real competition, it doesn't work well. Um, is it better than not work, than having none at all? Possibly you could say maybe it is, but the long term, that's not the real solution. So I think what you're seeing is, you know, really hard, big problems take a long time to really think about and figure out what do we do. And I think Jim's right. I think Republicans are trying to figure out we know this is a problem. And the fact that they say that is huge. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, not that the problem has been solved, but to, to say we have a problem in rural Georgia, and we need to figure this out. I think it's really good. And I think we have to sit back and think about what are the ways to solve this problem. Teresa, I'm going to give yeah. you the last word to before Jackie's, we go to a break. To Jackie's point. Um, yes, there's a lot of desperate improvement that needs to be made with the VA system, obviously. But the participants of that uh, system prefer the VA system to being privatized. And they tell us that regularly. And so just like climate change and just like uh, the issues we're dealing with with the shutdown, um, Medic Medicaid, dealing with those in poverty particularly, is, is the quintessential role of government. Doesn't mean they're going to control everything. We have to get away from Republicans going to a far extreme so we can talk about what reality is. Uh, nobody said that they're going to control everything, but they have to be able to take some of these more costly participants out of the market so that the free market can actually function properly. It's a partnership. And that's what we need to get to. We need to get away from the dogma. Yeah, I mean, it's either you're going to it's you're going to either pay now or you're going to pay that's later. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like the living wage question, yeah. you know. So, I mean, I don't I don't I don't get it. Absolutely. Jim, well, I think uh What's going to be interesting is to see when you judge how Republicans are going, are they going in a direction that brings more federal cash, more of that available federal cash into the system, or does it not? All right, we're going to watch how the uh, whole uh, debate over health care plays out. It's going to be fascinating to see what the Department of Community Health comes back with when it makes its proposal, that the one that Kemp referred to in his speech uh, on Thursday, uh, uh, what are they going to propose in terms of what kind of waivers? That's where the proof really is going to be in the pudding. All right, we're going to have to get to another break. A as we go to break, you know, there was some pretty good stagecraft in the governor's state of the state speech. And there were some moments that I think, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, were pretty moving. Uh, he took one moment during the state of the state address to recognize fallen police officers, law enforcement officers, and their families. And he had in the gallery Matt Cooper. Cooper is a six-year veteran of the Covington Police Force. He was shot in the head while responding to a call on Labor Day. He's had multiple surgeries. He's made progress. He's been in recovery for a long time now. He was in the gallery yesterday. His wife was at his side. He stood up on his own, but his wife held on to him very tightly. And he got, as you can imagine, a rousing, rousing uh, 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 
reception from the people who were in the chamber. So that was a nice moment in uh, the speech yesterday. Let's take another break. We'll come back with more on Political Rewind. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, a new play tells the story of gynecology pioneer J. Marion Sims and the enslaved black women he experimented on. What if I don't want to help him? When's the last time anything that we wanted mattered for anything? It's a story of science and ethics on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3 on GPB. people whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show. I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com. Jim Galloway, uh, the new lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, uh, if you had to uh, give him a grade for his first week as lieutenant governor, uh, it'd be a tough one. He had a rough first week in the Senate chamber. He did. He did. And this is, you know, this is this is running, walking into a, a new body and running it is difficult. Uh, Duncan was a House member before being mm-hmm. elected. That yep. means something. In the yeah, state they don't capital. like those House members yeah. much over there in the Senate. Uh, but he's yeah. but he's got control. He's he's got control. He's got a committee of assignment. Five members. Uh, that you've you've got the the old hands, Butch Miller and uh, and Mike Dugan there on on that. But he's got he, he dominates it with three of his own appointments. Mm-hmm. He's it's it's Duncan, it's Bill Cowsert, the governor's brother-in-law, and uh, Blake Tillery, who is the governor's floor leader. Okay, but that two two developments on the same day, Teresa. Uh, number one, the Senate votes to limit the amount of time that a person who works on the Senate side of the building can file any kind of harassment claim to two years. And more than that, says that you cannot file a claim against someone while they're a declared candidate for office. Obviously, response to the fact that uh, uh, David Schaefer, who was running for lieutenant governor, had to fight off sexual harassment charges. And then, at the same time, they strip Renee Unterman, Mm -hmm. who is not always been one of the more popular members of the Senate. Nevertheless, they strip her of her role as chair of the health committee. Right. Didn't play well with yes. women across the aisle. Right. And then they tried to use, with a two-year limitation for claims, they tried to use the EEOC, uh, which basically is just one aspect, and you get to file lawsuits. Um, so it was it, actually they allowed a window of, of about 14, 15 months where you can do this. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's pretty interesting because you're talking about some very powerful people. And uh, folks who um, who have been aggrieved, allegedly, uh, whose livelihood, whose entire careers depend on what they're about to do to make a claim. They could be very much involved with working directly with this person and to, to, to close the window that much is certainly questionable. Then you have uh, the fact of removing Renee Unterman, of course, from uh, being chair of a very prestigious committee, Health and Human Services. Um, and then uh, people look up to see that there are only four women uh, as chair of committees. Um, and only 15 women in the entire Senate, which is, uh, what's that? Anyway, not a good percentage, 25, 28%, 28%, let's say. And um, I I think I would say this. They said that they did it for various reasons, and and 
that's fine. But when you have a system uh, that's, in this instance, male-dominated by the numbers, and then you uh, have something with these large disparities, whatever reason you give doesn't ring true um, because it looks a little, well, it, it's it's a disparity. Well, the optics were bad, Jackie. Yeah. You had Democratic women in the Senate coming to the defense of Renee Unterman. <laughs> right. uh, so the, the women across party lines felt that this was a bad move. Well, I mean, clearly the optics were bad. And and Jim, uh, we Bill noted earlier that the, the picture that you picked out that ran on the AJC was a great picture of, of the senator talking. And she, right, she had her arms um, <laughs> up, which I thought was a really great picture. Um, so it, there's bad, bad optics, but I think a couple of things. First of all, we had this discussion last time I was here. I think the Republicans have, not just on the statewide basis, but nationally, done a very poor job of reaching out to women and saying, not only, they, they, a, they, don't, they won't keep anyone from running, but I think they do this to men and women. They're like, we believe in personal responsibility and that we don't really organize. And so if you want to run, you should just step up. And they really believe that that's the way that they, they should you know, operate. And the reality is what happens is therefore fewer women run. And so I think Republicans need to look at what's happening and say, my gosh, maybe what we're doing isn't working. Maybe we need to do something different because if you had more Republican women in the Senate, you would then have more Republican women as heads of different committees. So I think you have to think about this more of a long-term problem than just a short-term optics issue. Um, clearly, there are a lot of personalities in the Senate, and, and she has a very strong personality. It'll be interesting to see a couple, two things, and then I'll let um, move on. One is, will there be any, any rules changes as the session goes along? Because as you know, um, all the rules have to be on day one, and they have to be voted on, and they can be modified later. Uh, and that usually sends a pretty strong signal, so we'll see. And second, secondarily, will there be any adjustments to how the committees are run? Because historically, most legislation has gone through one committee. And if that changes, yeah. then that also changes how the committees have real input. Well, of course, one of the problems with this two-year limit, uh, Caesar, is that it was on the same day that the new governor as his first executive order uh, issued an order that, in fact, uh, would get tougher on sex harassment yeah. uh, in government office. So, so I, I think, the, as you mentioned earlier, I think the optics were horrible on this. You had the Unterman uh, chairmanship affair, and then you have the issue of sexual harassment. Now, now, if we're going to be candid, I think what we saw in this rule, which I thought was reactionary and precipitous, is a male reaction to this issue of sexual harassment. Yeah. Let's be candid. And I think the broader reaction also is, is how the wheels of government often get used, or the wheels get used, in uh, you know, state ethics, et cetera, to hurt candidacies. So I think this was a reaction to a lot of that, but I thought it was precipitous and the, op you know, the optics were bad. And in many ways, to your point about Governor Kemp's announcement, I think just kind of ill-timed and just... I think just a mistake. Well, you know, Jim, I know this is minor compared to the bigger question about women's role. I thought one of the worst moments for Duncan was he told your colleague, Greg Bluestein, oh, I didn't know they were doing that. I, I'm not sure you want to oh, tell that. The rule change, yes. The rule yes. change uh, about the two-year limit. I'm not sure that's what you want to tell well, the this public. Is, this, is, this, is, this is the familiarity <laughs> right. issue. This is, I get it, this but is, it this makes them look. It, it, it's not a good way to no, start. The basic problem here for Republicans, I mean, I mean, in Detroit, they, they win this game on, on the votes here. But the problem is that gender and party identity are becoming so closely allied. Yeah. In, in in the legislature that that you can't you you can't say oh we're just doing this to Democrats 
because you're not. You're doing this to women. To, to women. Yes. Interesting point. All right. Free, free communications advice. Uh, when you have something like this, <coughs> uh, Republican leadership should not say women should stop whining. Yes. So it, let's, whining's a bad word. It's yes. a bad, no, bad no, word. No, 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 yeah, no, this no, just no. didn't work in any way. All right, we're really I think getting. It's going to spark some some. Yeah, we're going to see new candidates in 2020. Yes, we'll see so. how this plays out. All right, no, we're, we're all right. Uh, I promised earlier we were going to show you another <laughs> poll number. Let's put it up right now. It's a poll number unfavorable, unfavorable for Stacey Abrams, who of course lost the race for governor, but is still keeping her hand out there mm -hmm. in politics. 52% favorable, 40% uh, unfavorable. Lopsided, more men are uh, more women than men, 59 to 45 uh, women to men. Uh, Jim, real quick, it, she's about to embark on a tour of the state. Does all of this, and Thank she's you. been up Thank to see you. Chuck Schumer. I think everything's related. I, th I think, you know, Washington Democrats are very eager to pick up uh, seats where they haven't picked them up before. Stacey Abrams has got a ready-made campaign operation set up and ready to go. There's going to be a lot of pressure on There are a number of people who are thinking about running as Democrats for really? uh, United States Senate. <laughs> I believe one of them is sitting on the set right now. Teresa Tomlinson, do you want to just update us on where you stand? Well, let me just say this. First of all, those numbers show that Georgia is a blue state. <laughs> and that if, as Stacey Abrams and many other Democrats have said, if Democrats would turn out to the polls, we would be a blue state and Stacey Abrams would now be our governor. Well, we're looking forward to hearing people are talking about your name a lot. You know that. I know that this is going to be something we'll look forward to hearing your decision on. Well, thank you. In this, in this day of, uh, of shutdowns, as Jackie was looking for a segue, let me just say government is important and who runs matters. So. Yeah. All right, Jackie, I know you want to talk shutdown. <laughs> we're so close to out of time. It, this has gotten to the point Trump is still, the polling still shows that people are blaming Trump. I can't help but wonder if Democrats don't figure out some way to be more proactive, whether they're going to start climbing in those negative numbers right along with the president. Oh, I think he ab absolutely. And the problem we have is we have President Donald Trump on one side and you know Nancy Pelosi on the other, neither of which want to negotiate at all. And it's very hard to actually have a deal if neither side will negotiate. And I think what's happening is, no one's really surprised about Trump, even though he has given on on the DACA. He said, well, we'll do something with DACA. We'll, we'll make sure those people are taken care of if you come to the party. Um, Pelosi's had no options in terms of what she wants to do. I think you're seeing some inside of her caucus that are getting frustrated with that because what they're getting is pressure from home. And so when they look at their leadership and say says that she's not willing to negotiate, she won't go to the White House, um, you know, what's going to happen? I think you have a lot of frustration. My advice actually was for, for um, Trump to go down to the Capitol and sit outside her office and say, I'm here to talk. I, I, do I don't think, know if he'll take I, it, but I think that would be look, great. I think pressure is coming <laughs> from both the Republicans and say, Democrats. Come on now. We, we got to talk. First of all, there was a DACA deal on the table, and it involved $20 million for border security. $20 and, billion. And $20 billion. And Trump pulled the rug out from that. That was the great Durbin. Uh, Graham. Yeah, last February. Absolutely. So we had a deal on the table. And we also had another deal on the table for this shutdown. It was passed and the president. All right. Well, we're going to have so to watch. Stop blaming we're going to watch to see who gets the blame. Uh, yeah. But, but something important happened this last week. You, you saw Johnny Isaacson get up on the floor mm -hmm. and he connected two things. He connected the shutdown and the Super Bowl in Atlanta on yes, February right. 3rd. Yeah. And he says, 
He says, if, if, if the airport falls into chaos, if Atlanta's airport falls into chaos, the Super Bowl will fall into chaos. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be amazing. I mean, on that Monday after the Super Bowl, TSA uh, is going to have their hands full. You're going to have long lines. And uh, you've got to wonder, are we going to see a repeat of 2000 when we were so Instead fortunate to get no the ice. Super Bowl? No ice this time, <laughs> but a, melt, a meltdown on the other side. All right. We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, Jackie Cushman, Caesar Mitchell, Teresa Tomlinson, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you all for being here. Hey, we have a special Political Rewind on Monday uh, for MLK Day. Carol Anderson, the head of the African-American Studies Program at Emory University, is going to talk to us about civil rights and about her own journey as an African-American woman. That's at 2 o'clock on Monday afternoon. We'll be back with another show on Tuesday at 2. Stay with us for all of that. In the meantime, see you soon.